Good morning, church. Uh, most of you probably know my name, but uh, if you don't, my name's Jonathan, and uh, I've been coming to the church for about two months or so now. And uh, Graham asked me to uh, come up this morning and just share uh, a bit about myself, my testimony, uh, how I came to know uh, Christ as my Savior, and uh, I won't take too long. Um, but yeah, so my story starts, uh, I was raised in a Christian home, you know, the classic uh, Sunday school story. Uh, I became a believer uh, at the age of six. Um, I remember the night uh, I became a believer, I'd heard a message and, and basically it came down to I was, I was afraid of going to hell. Uh, and I knew that, you know, Jesus could save me from that. Uh, and so at the age of six, I just, I trusted that. Um, and I was baptized uh, at the age of, it was either 13 or 14 uh, in my old church. Um, but I guess the thing that characterized me is that I, I really, I knew the truth. I, I understood the truth uh, of the gospel, and I knew how to behave like a Christian. Um, I knew how we were supposed to act and look uh, and perform. Uh, but I now realize, you know, like back then I was really, I was in bondage. Uh, to religion. I was very religious at the time. I was very stuck on, on certain views and how certain things were to go. Um, and you couldn't convince me of otherwise. Um, I was good at acting the part, um, looking like a Christian, but it was really, really it was a lot of legalism. Um, from the church that I grew up in, the way that I understood things was that, you know, there's a set of, almost like a set of rules and you follow these rules, and that's how you behave and act like a Christian. Uh, and if you don't do these things, well, then you're, you're kind of judged uh, because of that. Um, and so there wasn't a lot of room for grace. Uh, There's a lot of truth and a lot of grace, uh, and that characterized me. Um, about three years ago, I, I left that church. Uh, I started dating Emily, uh, and I started going to Harvest, um, and Emily, Emily characterizes it kind of like as a real spiritual awakening for me, uh, leaving my old church and going to Harvest. Uh, my heart, my mind, my soul, it was opened to so much more of what Christianity is, so much more of what living by faith is. Um, it's, not, it's not stuck in a set of rules that you follow. Um, it's, it's not just how you behave, but it's what's inside. It's, it's how you live before other people. It's how you treat other people. Um, it's how you show grace. And I just saw that Christianity was such a, a bigger thing. The church that I grew up in, it was kind of understood that if you were in this church, you were the proper type of Christian. You were supposed to act a certain way, do certain things, and follow certain rules and then you were a Christian that was how it was and if you left and you went other way, like somewhere else you were kind of almost shunned and so it was it was big for me uh, to leave that but when I left that you know I realized that my faith doesn't exist in rituals and performing and when I let when I left and I moved to harvest um, I got involved in small groups um, and young adults and men's and I got involved with working with the youth there. And I learned about accountability. I had never known about that. No one in my old church ever talked about their sins to each other. 
It was just assumed that if you were there and you're wearing your suit on Sunday morning that you weren't sinning, <laughs> to be honest. And there was a lot of hidden sin in my life. There was a ton of it. Um, and it was, it was crushing me. It really was. Um, and it was affecting a lot of relationships in my life. Um, and I learned about discipleship, too. I learned about what it was to have a brother come alongside uh, and help you to grow in the faith, uh, to have mentors, uh, and what that really meant, what that really looked like. We didn't have that growing up, people coming alongside and, and helping you along the way. Uh, and I learned about grace. as a big lesson that I learned uh, with Emily uh, because she grew up in a very different church than I did, and I was very much about we do things a certain way, and if they're not done this way, it's wrong. And I really didn't have a lot of reason to believe that. Um, and so Emily, it was a blessing in my life in that she challenged me in that, and I, I learned so much, and I, I learned what, what grace was, what it was to love um, and, and live the life of a Christian, not just perform it. Um, and I just want to close off by just sharing a few passages um, from Scripture uh, that have meant a lot to me. Uh, I've been thinking about a lot lately, and the first one is in uh, John chapter 4, and this is one of the first verses I heard when I left and I, I started going to harvest. Um, it really just opened my mind. Uh, John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. Jesus is saying here, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. I had, I had the truth. I knew the things to not do and the things to do, but I, I didn't have um, a spirit of worship. It wasn't alive in me, and God really, really grew that in me through that. Um, and it, it's been an amazing experience, and it's, it's the way that I'm, I'm going now and, and, uh, and coming into one it has been amazing to be able to be involved um, in this, you know, this awesome church. Um, and I just, I'll, I'll leave you guys with, with one final verse, just as like a, a bit of a statement. Um, it's found in Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6 and, uh, and verse 8. Uh, and I just hope and I pray that this would be our anthem as we go forward uh, for Jesus. This is uh, Isaiah's vision, um, and he's seeing here. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And that's what I want Jesus, that's what I want God to do in my life. Here I am, Lord, send me, I'll go. And I pray that you guys will go too. Thanks, Jonathan. I was, um, I love hearing the transformation stories in people's lives. You know, as God leads us, we don't stay the same. You know, he, he affects change in our hearts and um, we become totally different people, right? We die to things that we held dear before and um, I don't know, it's just powerful. So that's, awesome to hear. Let's uh, stand and we'll continue to sing this morning. Sequences like that, we get uh, kind of used to them in movies. And if you know the story, they, uh, 
I go on, because Gandalf stood up for his friends and he was the one who had said, I'll face the horrible Balrog and I'll take the chance. I'm the only one who can do it. And at the end, fly, you fools. Get away. Can't you see that what I've done is buy you this escape? That's what I wanted you to be able to get. And so we see this in movies and we see it in books. It's a story that we like. We like that story where, where someone will stand up and fight for the good guys, right? Someone who will risk it all, and they'll do what needs to be done so that the mission can go on. And they go on after this. That group goes on, and they get to the end, and they actually destroy the ring, and they save the world, and there's a large battle. But none of it would have happened if Gandalf hadn't been willing there. And we see it again and again if you watch Star Wars. That's that classic sequence where Obi-Wan, um, Ben, in the first one, turns off his lightsaber and lets all the attention go to him. And Darth Vader thinks he's cutting him down. And at that time, that's what gives the um, Luke Skywalker and Han Solo the ability to escape with Princess Leah and go on and change the world. You can see it in the Lego movie, which I'm sure most of you have seen. You know the Lego movie when Emmett says, I'm going to jump off. It's a story that comes up again and again and again. And we have a name for those kind of people. We call them heroes. Heroes are wonderful. They are inspiring. There's someone who's willing to risk, someone who's willing to stand up to the bad guys or that bad thing. It comes up so frequently. We see it in Star Trek. If you ever watch Star Trek, those movies, and just in the more recent one, you have Captain Kirk has been horribly radiated and he's trapped himself in this area so that he won't kill the crew, and they watch as he fades away, and her eyes are filled with... And if you can remember back to the first Star Trek, the first time they had to, to fight Khan, this, the same situation, but it's flipped around, and it was Spock, and he was in there, and he was, I will do this. And we look at those people, and we say, heroes, heroes. And they, they can't help but bring this stuff out of us. At the same time as you bring up hero, we're faced with something else. There's a new issue that starts to arise. Someone who is willing to die so that the good people survive, we celebrate that. It's a beautiful thing. We do it. It's instinctive in us. We just respond so well to that. But the Bible teaches us about a love that goes way beyond that. He's not only willing to die for the good people, the good guys, he's also willing to die for the bad people, the enemies, the ones that are going against them. It would be a love so radical that it would be like Captain Kirk choosing to die for the Klingons or um, Khan as they'd been fighting against the whole, the whole movie. It would be like Gandalf willing to die for Sauron, if you know any of these characters. It's the going above and beyond. Obi-Wan Kenobi dying for Darth Vader instead of being the one who was trying to kill him. It's the love that says, I value even those who work against me. That's what God says to us and for us. And when that happens, it takes us, <laughs> when you hear a story like that, it takes you out of the realm of hero and it moves you into the realm of weirdo. We don't get that. We don't have to have a word for what you do in that situation because nobody does something in that situation. It doesn't come up. We don't have words for that because the only story that you can see that works like that was God. 
when God sent Jesus to the earth to die for us. God, through Jesus, teaches us that his heart is so radically loving that he loves everyone, including his own enemies. It's why Jesus can call us to enemy love, where we will love our enemies. Because this is the kind of love that God has expressed towards us. To get what God is like is to participate in something like that. And that's why he says, love your enemies. God has loved us even when we were his enemies. So we're going to look at a passage in Romans. And, this, and we're going to sort of work through that. Romans chapter 5. So if we, we read it this morning so you'd have an idea. But if you've got your Bible here, open it up to Romans chapter 5. If you've got a handout, the notes should be in there as well. We're going to put the notes up on the screen. If you'd like to follow along in your uh, web-enabled smartphone, you can do that. Free app called Uversion. Look under Live Events. Look up into one, and you'll be able to follow along in that way as well. So you can see what's happening here, the way this story is being written. Um, so as you kind of get ready for that, a couple of things I wanted to uh, bring to your attention today. We're also going to um, say goodbye again to Victor right here, because Victor's going back to BC. Those of you following his story, he's been working out in BC for a while, so he's going to go back on Tuesday. So we're saying goodbye to Victor again, and um, we're going to pray that blessing on him that he would be able to go well, and his family would be well taken care of here, because we don't take that sort of thing lightly as these uh, things happen. We stand together, right? That's the way things work. In terms of that uh, story, I also wanted to bring this to your attention, that Vista uh, Magazine, I know a lot of you read, uh, this is our Alliance magazine. Alliance is the, the word that we use for the denomination that we're part of, Christian and Missionary Alliance. They abbreviate it down to alliance.ca. And this is a bi-monthly, bi-yearly, bi-annually, however you say that, magazine that uh, they put out. And the reason I'm bringing this to your attention and letting you have them for free today, if you would like, is that if you come inside, you will see that they have done an article on us. And they have put us in there. So if you think that's kind of interesting and kind of fun. I think it's nice. Leslie Wilkinson wrote the article, and uh, this is a, another way that people have been recognizing Into One is doing some good things. You, we're making an environment that people are, are hearing about and reading about, and they're encouraged by that. And I want you to know that because you are that. You are the ones that bring this thing to life. It's not a matter that one person thinks this. It's that you actively participate in that. And so it's here. If you think that's interesting... Apparently, I've gone beyond my battery life. I have two AA batteries in the top of my backpack. Um, oh, I also wanted to tell you about um, you, what you see is what you, when you're here, this is what you think, this is what church looks like, right? And we have tried to express repeatedly that we, we believe that there's more. When we gather together, we sort of think of it like this. We are gathered together, but the real essence of our church is when we go like this. When you leave here and you take everywhere you go and you stretch it out from here so the, the, the people that you meet with at your job or your work, the, the family members that you get to interact with, the people that you go to school with, this is where the influence of our church really is important and significant. This is where you live out all the things that we say. So when we're here, 
praise God. I'm so glad that you're here. And we will stand together, and we will encourage and support, and we will do those things to make um, ourselves be part of this family. But the real importance is when we go out, and not just on a missions trip or something like that, although those are important, but when we take our life as just being the mission that we're on. This is what we're doing. And so part of this that you don't really get to follow is we have a podcast. In our podcast, we record what happens here, and we put it on the Internet. And on the Internet, you can access this stuff from anywhere on Earth. So we have an access to it directly from our website that you can find, podcast. Or you can go to iTunes and search up into one, and you will be able to find it. And you'll have a record. You'll be able to get the handout that you have there. You could download that and you can listen. And it's the whole catalog going backwards. And you say, well, that's a really interesting idea. I wonder if anyone on Earth actually cares about that. And I have to tell you that they do. And I don't know why, honestly. I don't know how they find out. But in March alone, there were 686 downloads. We are well over 24,000, close to 25,000 downloads for the couple of years. 686 in March alone. So I want you to know that because this is a resource that you can use yourself or it's something that you can use to let people know, whether they ever come or not. We're not so much about, boy, we really want you to come, although we would really like you to come. What we would like you to do is be part of the community of faith, however that's going to work out. And if we can be part of that and help, fantastic. 686 in March alone. Now, I'm not sure if you do math as well as I do, but if you took a quick count today, you'd find that we are less than 600. 600. So if we count everyone who came throughout March, we would not get to 686. Our influence goes significantly farther than we realize. And I tell you that because it's something that you don't normally see, and I want you to be encouraged by it, but I also want you to know that it's also one of those background expenses that we don't talk about a whole heck of a lot. There are certain costs involved, and we want you to partner with us in making a difference. And so we ask you to participate in your own life and reach out in that way, but we also ask, hey, if you could help support the church, if you could be involved in, in, in paying some of the bills that we have, it's fantastic. There's some that are not so exciting. Rent. No one really gets excited about rent, but I thought that something that you might be able to get a little bit more interested in is knowing 686 in March alone. So if, uh, if, if you would like, we have a box over here that you can see on our table. That's the place where you can put your offering when you'd like to at the end. There are envelopes up there if you would like a tax receipt. It's also the place that uh, if you look at your worship folder, the handout that you have, there is a, there's a spot on it, the side that you can rip off. And if you would like to become more... Um, a part of us, then we, we need some information. We need to know what your name is, for one thing. That really helps. And how to contact you. And, and then if you would like us to contact you, you can just make that note on there too. And you can just uh, fill that out and put it in that box over here as well. And then we would be able to know that you were here. We'd be able to thank you for that. But we'd be able to try and integrate you a little better to find out more about you and to make sure that you know what's going on in that way. So, all right, here we go. Sorry about that. Uh, back to where we were. Right. Romans chapter 5, right? All right. This passage is uh, powerful, and it's also a little bit complicated. It uses some, uh, some words that we're not so familiar with, perhaps. Um, some big philosophical questions come up from this, and so uh, I, I want to drop some of those on you, but I will tell you in advance we're going to try and move to application more than simply dealing in philosophy. 
Um, so we're going to move through that today. And one of the things I would encourage, if this was interesting to you in some way, that maybe you would say, well, maybe I can participate in a further discussion because we're going to talk about it on Thursday night. So at our small group this week, we're going to meet at the Mitchells, uh, not Mitchells, the other M, the Murphy's house. And we're going to go to their house the first time. They're back in our rotation now. The baby has uh, survived enough. Morning, Abby. Yeah, she just had a baby shower. It was awesome. She was, there's like a thousand pictures I think we saw of Abby turning, turning a little bit. You know, like that little baby picture, sorry, the smallest little thing is a big deal. Um, so we're going to go back to the Murphy. So if you'd like to discuss this a little bit more, we're going to do that on Thursday night. But today, all right, Romans 5, 1 to 11. It's a section that you would think of, uh, it's divided up. Sometimes in our Bibles, they put little headings in. This is a heading area that, that Paul would sort of say, this is one thought. One kind of piece of stuff that I'm talking about is all there together. And he's talking about what salvation looks like in the Christian life. How do we um, come to these sorts of things? And so he uses two great big words that are um, lots of meaning. But when you, when you don't know what they are, when you're not familiar with them, you kind of just gloss right over stuff, and it's hard to focus on them. So the first comes up in verse 1, if you uh, see there. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The first big word is justified, or we would say more frequently, justification. That's the big word. It's a legal term, and that legal term refers to you, um, you're being declared not guilty by a judge. Your trial has already happened, and you are declared not guilty. You are justified. Um, so that legally, we would say that it's just as if you had never committed the crime, or just as if you'd never sinned. You are now living in innocence. This is the way Paul is describing for us. So the beauty of this is that in the New Testament, this brings out an ethic. And when we describe that, we see this is how I'm going to live. Because of this justification, the New Testament ethic that I will live with is called gratitude. This is the way that we relate to God. This is what we have to go back and forth with him. It's a relationship that is now based on gratitude. We live continually grateful for the grace that we have received. No more have to. The New Testament ethic is about gratitude. I do because I choose to, because I am thankful. That's why I choose to live this way. I live this way no longer so that I will pass the test on Judgment Day, which is the old system, right? If I do it well enough, then on Judgment Day we'll find out what happens, we'll see if I'm good enough. No longer we have been justified so that we live out of gratitude. Whatever we do in pursuit and service of God, we do from gratitude and love, not I have to. No longer are we bound in that sort of a way. Um, Paul took a little bit of time to talk about suffering and what that looks like and how we can suffer well as Christians following in the footsteps of Jesus because of the hope that he has given us. And he's going to end this passage. We get down to the end in verse 11. You'll get to there. And the second big word that comes up is reconciliation. Reconciliation. Um, justification gave us the clean slate, the fresh start, the new beginning. Reconciliation is it describes something similar, but it's not as legal. Reconciliation tends to be between two people, and um, people who should be in a relationship, but are not having a relationship because something has broken. They're, they're, they're apart, and reconciliation is about how to bring them back together. So when that relationship is being put back together, when it's being restored, that's called reconciliation. In this case, it's the human species being reconciled with God. And we should be in beautiful, 
intimate relationship, but it's been broken apart by sin and by rebellion. And when we, let's not make those terms too vague, right? It's not by sin, it's by my sin. It's not by rebellion, it's by my rebellion. It's not because of um, something that's vague and impersonal. It's because of the choices that I make. It's because of the choices that you make. We, we exist as a species, but we exist as individuals as well. It's my choices, my rebellion that causes the problem, and my rebellion is what needs to be dealt with. And so this is what reconciliation is um, working with. Now, the, the idea of justification would have been very, very common in the ancient world. So ancient Greeks and ancient Romans, their religious system was good at dealing with justification. Even the Jewish system would be able to work in this. We don't want God mad at us. And we believe that God is always on the edge of being mad at us. So what do we do? We give God what we think he wants. He wants sacrifice. So I give God a payoff. Here, don't be mad at me. And I'll do that. But my fear is that it's never enough. My fear is I'm going to have to do this again. My fear is that um, when it gets to judgment day, I won't have been able to do the right sacrifices. So periodically, I'm going to want to ask my God for something. So I'm going to want to give him another sacrifice up front to sort of say, no, I'm really serious. If you help me out, I'll give you another animal. And, and somehow God was supposed to be happy with that. Reconciliation is a completely different thing because it speaks of relationship. The concept wouldn't have existed for the, the Greeks and the Romans because they had no sense that there was a relationship with their gods. There was no intimacy in them. There was fear. I just want to not get destroyed. How do I not get destroyed? So this reconciliation that Paul's bringing up here is a new kind of concept, maybe a word that we've heard more, but in this place where he's talking about it, it's radical and it's huge. And it really changes the way because it releases an intimacy that God is saying, I want to be in relationship. I want to be with you. Yahweh, the God of Israel, creator of the universe, wants intimacy with us. When he says these are things that you should do, he never says them, and then I'll like you. What he says is if you do these things, your life will be on the right path. I will be more able to speak into your life. I'll be more able to help you. I'll be more able to guide you. If you submit to me, then I can assist you in living, and you will do it in the best possible way because that's what I want for you. The best possible life is what I want for you, not do this or I'm mad at you. And we have to get... It's very hard to shake that kind of a belief that God is somehow wanting my 15 minutes of prayer every morning between these hours. And without that, God is going to pout for the rest of the day because I didn't give him what he wanted. Well, prayer wasn't for God in that context, right? It's very much for us. How do I connect with God? How do I have my mind reset and refocused so that I can process and deal with where I am? But how do I also hear back from him? He didn't want the prayer. He wanted the communication. And so it, it tells us something different, that our God has an amazing love for us. Our God has a heroic love for us, but more than a heroic love because he loves even those who are called his enemies. I will die for my friends, yes, and Jesus has called us friends, but he chose to die for us when we were still known as enemies. Uh, Romans 5, that's where we're going to uh, go to verse 6, and you'll, you'll see that this is where he's describing um, it's not just the Spirit pouring out love to us, which is what he says before this, but now, how do we know God's love? What does it look like? How do we, how do we come in contact with it? Verse 6, you see, at just the right time, 
when we were still powerless, Christ died for the who? He didn't die for the good ones. He didn't die for the good guys. He didn't die for the other heroes. He died for the ungodly. He died for the not good guys. He died for the bad guys. Knowing that's what he was doing, that's the choice, that's how it came about. He knew exactly what was happening. And so he goes on to, to keep saying what we've been saying before here in verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. Heroes are not a dime a dozen, but they do exist. We do hear stories of them, and we celebrate those stories. But, this is our big but today. This is God's big but. But, 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 but God. There was this, but God. He intervened. He, he came into our world. He interceded. He's made a change. There's something that is, no, that is now different. You're familiar with this, but now this is what it is. But God demonstrates ongoing. I'm not a real grammar kind of person, but sometimes grammar really shows up as important. But God demonstrates is not but God demonstrated. There is a difference, and demonstrates is an ongoing present tense, which means this demonstration is ongoing. It hasn't stopped. What he did then makes a difference now, ongoing present tense. But God demonstrates his own love. This is an important one as well. Sometimes we make a separation in God. We like Jesus, right? Jesus is the loving one, but when we refer to God, we usually mean the Father, and we know the Father is somewhat temperamental. He gets a little upset, and so this is saying clearly, but God shows us his own love, not just the love of Jesus. They, they are one, but sometimes we make the separation. This is not just the Father's plan that Jesus invaded and interrupted. This is not, he was somehow going to do something, but luckily Jesus got in there and he put in a good word for us. That's not the way it's reading. This is the way God the Father is showing his love to us for it, um, his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still the bad guys, while we were still the enemies of God, this goes beyond being the hero. Love of the enemy is something that we are unfamiliar with, but this is something that defines who our God is. This is what he's like, ongoing. This is the way he is. Um, he doesn't just die for his friends, but for his enemies. The big but is our contrast point. It's a contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. It is a contrast that uh, brings to the surface in Scripture, and sometimes we don't know what to do with that. It's in contrast with the other, other love that's displayed in our culture. It's better than Gandalf's love. It's better than Obi-Wan's love. It's better than Kirk's love. This love goes far above and beyond. It also brings about a contrast for us who are familiar more typically with the New Testament than the Old Testament. Because isn't the Old Testament kind of filled with wrath? And isn't the God of the Old Testament kind of partial to slaying? There's a lot of slaying in the Old Testament. How come? What about? How do we do these things if this is God and he's self-sacrificing and he's dying? How come we have so many stories where it's not that way? How come the Old Testament has so much of that stuff in it? And this is a problem. Right? We don't have to pretend that it's not. This is something that we need to, need to explain. 
This is something that we need to be able to have some understanding. We don't try to back away from things that we don't know. We also don't try and say things that we don't know are true. So we say, yeah, there is an issue there. There is somewhat of a PR kind of campaign that's making it look like something is there. So what do we do? Do we just take a little bit of 50-50 and say a little bit of this and a little bit of that? Do we just say God's moody and sometimes he has a mood and he looks like this and sometimes he has a mood that looks like that? Frankly, it's much, much easier just to say that's the way God is and that's the end. Sometimes he's slaying, sometimes he's loving. But the story is more than, than we think. Um, look at uh, John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Colossians, Hebrews, they say the same thing. He is the exact image or the exact representation of God's heart. He reveals God to us in an uncompromised way. So John 1.14, another one of my favorite verses, comes up. The Word became flesh... The word is Jesus, became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is what God looks like. He is the sum total of what God wants to say to us. Jesus is God's ultimate revelation. Jesus is not an addition to Scripture. He is the starting point. Jesus is where you begin, and then you work out from there. That's how you understand what's going on here. Um, having said that, when we flip through the Old Testament, that gets us scratching our heads. How do we put this stuff together? If Jesus is who God has always been, what he's always been like, then how do we deal with or understand the God of the Old Testament? There are different ways that Christians have tried to do that over the years. They say different things. Um, we acknowledge it as a challenge. It's one of those things that doesn't, on the surface, um, make sense to us. And that's why we quite often read those passages separately. That's an Old Testament. We start with an Old Testament mindset. We have a New Testament. We start with a New Testament mindset. But what we're saying is that we start with a Jesus mindset, and then we understand the Old Testament based on who Jesus is, not looking at the Old Testament as saying, you know, Jesus never happened, right? Jesus is the representation of God. So if that's true, then... What do we see when we look back in the Old Testament? Yes, that's what God looks like, and we just got to figure that part out. This is not really easily done, and this is where the things get a little bit more complicated. So we're going to tell you something. Why is there the switch? Why does it look different? And the switch sometimes is something that we just identify on the surface. It's not what's really there. It's just the way that we see it. So the first thing, why is there the switch? Well, number one, God has always been about self-sacrifice. If this is who Jesus is, if Jesus is the DNA of God, then Jesus shows us that God has always been about self-sacrifice. And when you read the Old Testament, you'll find plenty of places where you see this self-sacrifice. Number two, we have always been about self-preservation. We have always been that way. We continue to be in that way. This is something that Jesus works to save us from. This says more about who we are than who God is. And the third one, this is the big one, this is the hard one. So listen, before Christ, God accommodated our stubborn hearts and still worked within our relationship to reveal aspects of his heart. That's complicated. I get it. Hang in there. 
what we see is a pattern in the Old Testament. Since God made us in his image, then he honors that image within us. He doesn't ever push on us and say, you will have to do it my way. He always lets us um, be in partnership with him. That's the plan. The strategy is that God has decided he will work in partnership with us to accomplish whatever he's going to do. And he's done that from the very beginning, and that's the plan going through to the end. We argue sometimes about the wisdom in God's plan. Why would you depend so much on us? We mess stuff up. But he said, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I will always do. I will always work together with my image bearers to complete the mission that I have. He doesn't say, hey, I'm in charge. I am God of the universe, powerful above all beings. You will do what I want. He also doesn't say, fine, you want it your way? Go ahead. I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. He works with us when we mess stuff up. Um, it sounds a lot like if you're ever trying to do crafts with your kids, you know what you'd kind of like to see at the end, but if you're going to do crafts with your kids, you've got to kind of let them do it the way that they do it and try and help them as they do that, but just try and stop the house from burning down as they are doing their craft. You let them be creative, let them stumble along, but let them have their sense of that they're involved in it. We see examples of this throughout the Old Testament, and this is, the, this is where we see what God is like. The first one is that Israel has, has kings. Check history. Go back. The prophet Samuel comes to God and says, God, Israel wants a king, just like everybody else. God hears, and he hears that as saying, Israel is rejecting me. I am their king. I am the one. I make them different and distinct, but what they want is to be the same. I know this king is going to be a bad thing for you. I know that it's going to bring about pain, incredible pain. I know that it's going to give you relationships that you don't want. And I hear all of that at the same time as I'm hearing, we don't want you. Does God say no to them? He says, you really want a king? Okay, well then I'm going to participate with you in this. Let me help you find good kings. Let me be involved in that with you. And so Samuel goes on to start anointing kings. God starts to work with kings. God sends prophets to try and inform kings. He sends prophets to try and call kings back because they've gone over the, um, over the line. Um, if you were to just drop into the Old Testament right in the middle and you'd say, oh wow, there's a couple of books here named Kings and there's a lot of kings. King this and king that and there's a king over here and there's a king down there. I guess God really likes kings. That must be what he really wanted because there's so much information about kings. But it's not that way because at the very beginning God took the time to say, I don't want you to have a king. I am your king. That is the best possible scenario for you. But you want a king. Okay. I will work within the framework that you would like to work. This will help you move along. Then I will let you have that. Even though it will make you miserable. I'm in this for the long haul. I'm not in it for the right now. I know where the, where the ark 
of history is going to go, and I can take you there as well. I will work in this situation that you've brought up that will have lots of pain in it, but I won't abandon you in that. I will try and make this the best I can possibly do. The next one that you can see um, it goes well along with that. It's the temple. David comes to God, just the second king, comes to God and he says, you know what, God, I'm going to build you a big house because all of the other gods in other countries have big houses. You deserve a big house. You know what, I'm a king and I have a big house. And God, I'm not sure if you remember this, but, but you're kind of like a king too. So you deserve to have a big house. I would like to do that for you. And God says to him, no, I don't want a temple. I got a tabernacle. It's portable. It moves. It's good enough for me. It's what I would like. And David says, God, it's embarrassing that I have to talk to you this way, but you need a temple. Everyone's got a temple. That's the way we do things now. That's the way we relate. You're not sort of into our culture the same way that I am, and I know that a temple is what we need. And God says again, no. I got a tabernacle. It's, it's, it's the tent. It's, it's, it's a little airier. It's, it's breezy. I'm kind of an outdoorsy kind of deity. I like the temple in my tabernacle. I don't want a hard building. And David says, no, you need this. And so Solomon builds the temple. And God shows up, and his glory fills the temple. So do we take from that that God wanted the temple all along? No, we take from it that God would work with us whenever we do something. This temple's going to help you? You think that's important? Well, then I'll bless it, and I'll use it. And my plan will always be to point to the future. You understand temple, so I'm going to point to the future. It's going to come back to Jesus because the next part is um, sacrifices. Well, God was never really big on sacrifices, but you know who was doing sacrifices? Everybody else. Everybody else was doing sacrifices, and so they said, God, I don't, I don't really get this sort of conversation between us. I'd like to have something physical. He goes, sacrifices? Yes, we'd like sacrifices. And so there's a system that comes in that God says, I will use your system, but I'm going to teach you the future. I'm pointing to Jesus the entire time. I know that your temple is going to distract you from relationship to me. I know that this sacrificial system in the temple is going to constantly get you to focus on the religion instead of the relationship. I know that this is going to break things down. I know that you don't see me in the same way because you don't see me as your king anymore. I know we're going to have a breakdown in these things, but I will work with you through kings, through your temple, through your sacrificial system, through your need to kill your neighbors, through all these sorts of things that we, we have as people because everyone else does them. We bring them in. But God continues to say, I can work with you in that time. He allows us to choose those things, but he chooses to point them to Jesus who at the end will say, I am the temple. You will destroy the temple and I will rise it back up in three days. I will be the final sacrifice. I will be the one that ends this system for you. And he uses all of those things to point to Jesus at that time. So when we read the Old Testament, there's an awful lot of time that we need to read that through tears. Those things that are happening, they're history, but they're horrible at the same time. They're horrible, and we read them with tears because I believe that's the way that God went through them, with tears as well. This is what you chose. I tried to stop you. This is what you wanted, but I will work with you in this time, and we will come through even this, and I will be faithful to you. 
I will still accomplish the things that I would have because I have chosen to work through you. I partner with you to make a difference in this world. It's the same today. God partners with us in this world, and he refuses to give up on us even when we make bad choices. And we continue to make bad choices, but God doesn't abandon us. He says, I can work with that. Romans 8.28 sort of gives us a quick summary of that, that sense, that feeling. And we know that all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Regardless of what the situation is, God brings good from it. He moves it in a direction. He redeems and he transforms even our mess to put it into a good direction. So here's the point. We get through that. There's the big heady thoughts. We can't answer everything that that brings up today, but the point that we're coming to is relationships. Are there relationships in your life that you can think of where you have room to improve to love as you have been loved? Even when you're not loved by the other person, not based on what they do, but based on how God has loved you. You've been welcomed. You've been restored. You've been forgiven. You've been invested in. We quite often want to say, thank you, God, for what you've done for me. Thank you for forgiving me. I just don't have any particular interest in doing the same thing. Thank you for the grace that you have given to me. It has transformed my life. I'm different because of it. I know that I have hope and a future, but I there's some people who I would like to give that grace to. And we don't want to say that there's some people that I don't. So for you, is there someone that's there? Is it your parents? Is it your children? If you think about some of these places, we're tender in these spots. Is it your spouse? Ouch. Is it your former spouse? Ouch. Is it your extended family, the crazy Uncle Jethro? He messes up everything whenever we're around. What about your friends? <laughs> or the ones that used to be your friends? What about bullies? Whether they're in person or whether they're online. What does loving those people really look like? And what about those people? You know the ones I mean. They're those people. They're just beyond what we can do. And just as a little reference point backwards, we, a couple of weeks ago we were talking about what it would be like for us to be Christians in a world where ISIS exists. What's our relationship to ISIS? What would it be like if we were to be around those people? Are those the people that Jesus really meant for us when he said you should love your enemies? Or is there a different classification? See, we're called to love our family. We're called to love our friends. We're called to love our enemies. Who is it that we have not been called to love? Who is not on that list? Now, as you're thinking about what does it mean to love, I have a a couple of quick reminders I want to just give to you about what love looks like and what it is, and it also implies what love is not. So the first thing, quick reminders about love. Love is the choice to relate to someone as valuable. 
Number two, love is meant to be offered to everyone. Number three, love can be given regardless of the emotions involved, which means you don't have to wait to feel like it to treat people like they're valuable. Love never means passively tolerating wrong, whatever the wrong is. It doesn't stop us from loving, but it, the love doesn't mean we tolerate it. And the last thing that defines how this all works out together, what does it look like when I do this? Love always asks the question, how can I help you become the best version of yourself? We do all these things by learning to better follow the Spirit. The Spirit guides us because there's not a list of rules that we have to follow anymore. It's harder than that, and it's easier than that. It's more freeing than that because the Spirit guides us as we go forward. That means we get better at it. So if you start now and you go, I don't know what on earth I'm supposed to do, that's a starting place. You'll get better at it as you go. What does it mean for you to love your enemy this week? What can you do this week that would change an atmosphere that you're in where you can sense that there's brokenness that requires reconciliation? You can't make people do stuff, right? That doesn't work. But as far as it concerns you, we can live at peace with all people. I have done what I can to move this forward, and I will continue to do what I can to move this forward. We will continue to look at abandoning self-preservation because in that we will find that we can now have faith that God takes care of my needs. I don't have self-preservation because I have God-preservation. He's the one who's going to take care of me. I don't have to hold back and hold it in and protect myself in that same way like we're all in the habit of doing. We learn to trust that God will take care of us in all those things. Everyday life, not in a spiritual moment, not just when we're in church and the song is nice, not just when we're here, but when we're here. What will that look like for you this week? As you consider what that is like, let's take, take a moment and ask that God would actually be involved in this process with us because it's not just a thought. This thought must become life for it to make a difference. We are not considering what might be good Christian ideas. We're trying to embody the life of Christ. In us. That's what it says, that we are becoming more like him. We will make a difference where we are and who we're with when we live these things out. So pray with me. Kind Father, thank you. Thank you for the grace that you have shown to us. Thank you for the love that displayed to us in while we were still far from you. You died for us. While I was actively rebellious, you died for me. You showed me love that I didn't deserve. You provided hope that I couldn't imagine. But when I have to live this out in my everyday life, God, it's hard. And I don't know exactly what I do and what I don't do. I know that so many of my relationships are, have hurt in them. <laughs> Not just past hurt, but present hurt. And I feel naked. I feel exposed. I feel very, very vulnerable. But my desire is to follow you. My desire is to live in the freedom that you have promised is possible when I trust and obey, when I remain faithful and obedient. I pray that you would wrap me in grace and in truth. 
but that you would make us known to be people who are loving, not tolerant, loving. I don't know how to do that. God, I confess that to you this morning. And I feel like a bunch of my friends are kind of in the same spot. I don't know exactly how to make that happen. So I ask that you would be Lord in our life as well, and that you would prompt me, and that I would hear you, that I would listen, and that I would obey. But this week, I acknowledge that I will need your help in trying to make this come to life, because it is something that is not from my nature. This is something that's very much from your nature. May it increase in me. May I decrease, and may you increase. Help me this week live in a loving manner. Thank you for promising that you are already active and involved in this. I look forward to watching how this works out this week. Thanks. In Jesus' name.